This evening we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 15, so let me invite you to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 15. The rise of Saul's reign comes to an end by the last part of chapter 14. So that doesn't mean his reign comes to an end, but the rise of it. So if you think of Saul's reign like an arc, it kind of rises. He's doing well. He's gaining favor, and then he begins to fall. So here's where we start to see the decline of Saul eventually to his final collapse when he dies, uh, I believe, an unbeliever, and where David finally takes over. And so that's where we are here in, in this uh, record of First Samuel. And so let me read the first 19 verses, a little bit of a longer chapter, so I'll just read through verse 19, beginning of verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless. That they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to, to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, It's not true. Though you, it is not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the, the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Tonight, in 1 Samuel 15, we're going to see that God hates partial obedience. God hates partial obedience. Here in this, this chapter, I think we see 11 signs of spiritual failure. Can I get help on that first slide there? 
Evan? Nobody's up there. Okay, just imagine that this is really nice. It says across the top, 11 signs of spiritual failure. I think he's locking some doors or something. All right, number one. A spiritual failure obeys God to the, to the extent that it matches his own desire, verses 1 through 9. A spiritual failure matches God to the extent that it matches his own desire. There we go. Thank you. So God's explicit command here is seen in verses 1 through 3. Saul needed to understand that God's voice was what was going to lead God's people. And that's one of the key words throughout this text. Notice how many times the word voice is used. Look at verse 1. Now therefore listen to the voice of the Lord. And then verse 14. What then is the voice of the sheep in my ears? Verse 14. And the, uh, the voice of the oxen which I hear. Verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Verse 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Verse 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And then in verse 24, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared and listened to their voice, the people's voice. The point is that the, the voice that Saul ought to have been looking or, or listening to was God's voice. Not the people's voice, but God's voice. That, that even though Saul was king, the people didn't belong to Saul. These people belonged to God. And, and Saul was not free to make choices outside of the rule of God. That is, God had a, a desire for what he wanted for Saul, but Saul could just kind of go out here and make his own choices because, hey, these are my people. They weren't his people. They were God's people. And so what God was teaching him, and I think the future kings who would read something like this, is that God's people would be led by listening to God's voice. No matter how much power that king had, that king had to listen to God and had to lead the people to listen to God as well. In verse 2, we see that God calls for Saul to carry out a command. And specifically it is to, to destroy the Amalekites completely. Utterly destroy is the, the key phrase that we see over and over again in this chapter. And it's amazing how long-suffering God is with this people group, the Amalekites. The Amalekites are being judged now for the sins that, that had been committed against Israel when Israel was coming out of Egypt. Remember that? When Israel was coming out of Egypt, they tried to pass through the Amalekite country, but the Am- Amaleks wouldn't let them. The Amalekites wouldn't let them. And so God said, don't be surprised when I come and destroy you. But do you know what he did? Instead of destroying them immediately, he gave them some time to repent. In fact, he gave them a couple centuries, a couple generations of people before he finally judged them for their their sin. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not really fair because these people that are living during the time of Saul and Samuel, they're not responsible for what their grandfathers and great-grandfathers did, right? So why is God destroying them for the sins of their fathers? But what you need to recognize is that God is actually destroying them for their own sin. The point is that they're following after their grandfathers and great-grandfathers. Look at verse 33. Samuel said to Agag, remember Agag thinks he's going to survive. We'll get to that here later. But Samuel said, As your sword, King Agag, has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. So Agag is not being killed or destroyed by God, punished by God because of the sins of his father, is he? 
God simply giving them as a nation time to repent, and it turns out that this nation hasn't repented. Agag, Agag clearly has defied God. The current generation is no different. That is the current generation of Amalekites. Verse 18, And the Lord sent you on a mission. This is Samuel to Saul. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy, notice, the sinners, the Amalekites. He's not saying the descendants of the sinners. So, so don't think, you know, when, when God tells Joshua to destroy Jericho, utterly wipe them out, don't think that those people were innocent. Don't think that these people are innocent. God simply is being long-suffering with them over several generations, finally uh, bringing down judgment on them for the sins that they followed in their father's footsteps. Notice the clear command. That's kind of an aside here because the real point is how Saul responds in all of this. The clear command is in verse 3, and it is to utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. Now, is there any room for misinterpretation with this command, the way that God put it? Utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. No, there's no room for misinterpretation. As long as Saul heard what Samuel was saying from God, then he should have understood that God wanted them wiped out completely. Notice the rest of the verse. But put to death both man and woman, man and woman child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The point of, you know, we could say, well, what about the infants? What about the babies? Why destroy them? They haven't done anything. They, they are innocent, and that's true. But what we need to recognize is that what God's trying to do is to wipe out a race. He's trying to wipe out a race of people that, that have consistently defied him so that they will not continue on the abominable practices. And that's what he, he did with the, the Canaanites as well during the conquest. And so the, the command to Saul is very clear. Wipe them out completely. Spare nothing at all. Now in verses 4 through 7, we see that Saul obeys God's command. And if this were all we had, if we just had verses 1 through 7, we would actually commend Saul as an obedient servant of God. Because notice what he does. He summons his soldiers in verse 4. He comes to the city, verse 5. And he even spares this other group of people who really shouldn't have been part of it. He says, you know, you guys are the Kenites. These are descendants of um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And so he's like, you Kenites, you guys can go because you're not a part of this. It's kind of a merciful thing that Saul does here. Then in verse 7, he defeats the Amalekites. And then it tells how far he does it. And if that's all we had, we would say, yes, Saul, you obeyed God. God told you to utterly wipe them out and you did it. But here's the partial obedience in verses 8 and 9. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So he utterly destroyed the people, but he spared Agag. And then we find in verse 9, also the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and so on. All that was good. So what was the command? Remember verse 3? What was the command? Go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy them, and do not spare him. But what does verse 9 say? But Saul... And the people spared. So do not spare, but Saul and the people spared. See the, 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 the um, partial obedience? Yes, you told us to destroy Amalek. We did it. But not all the way. We kind of thought you know, it would be okay with you if we just spared some. Now why Saul spared Agag the king? It's not clear. 
Did he want to make uh, a trophy out of Agag? You know, kind of parade him around the city and show this captured king? Did he, did he want to make a spectacle of Agag? Maybe put him in a cage and, and let people come and see him? Well, the text doesn't tell us why he did, but whatever the case, it wasn't about serving God. It was about serving his own purpose. And notice the end of verse 9, because this is what spiritual failure does. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So here's where I get this point. A spiritual failure obeys God only when it's expedient. If it's worthless, not, not, I can't really do anything with it. I, I don't have any value. I don't see any value in that. Well, I'm happy to obey you in that sense, God. I'm happy to put that on the altar and sacrifice that. But if it means something to me, if it has value, if, it's, if I can do something with it, I, I'm not going to give that up. And this is Saul. He's happy to utterly destroy the worthless and despised things, but for the valuable things, he will not. A spiritual failure is happy to obey God as long as, as it's expedient. Number two, spiritual failure is concerned about his own legacy. And I would say primarily about its own legacy. I don't think it's wrong for us to think about what is it going to be like? What kind of legacy, what kind of legend are we going to leave behind? Maybe legend is not the best word, but what kind, of, um, what, what kind of legacy are we going to leave behind for our kids? How are they going to think about us? Because there is a sense in which we can speak from the grave after we're dead. Not in a, a mystical or a, a kind of a, a spooky kind of way, but, but that is that our lives, that as we obey and, and follow God, that people remember how that happened, whether through just regular memories, them, them seeing how we live. I mean, you can think of this yourself, right? You know spiritual people that have died, godly people who have died, and their souls, in a sense, speak from the grave. This is how uh, I think Hebrews 11 talks about Abel's blood, right? It speaks from the grave. Abel's faithfulness to God speaks from the grave. And we have that ability. So I'm not talking about that. What's, what Saul is concerned about primarily is his own legacy to the expense of obeying God. That's the point. That's what a spiritual failure does. He's all concerned about his own legacy. Before Saul realizes how serious his failure is to God, notice what he does in verse 12. Samuel said, uh, someone said to Saul, or to Samuel at the end of verse 12, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. So apparently, after this great victory, Saul decides, hey, what better way to memorialize what has happened here than to set up a monument for myself of my victory that I have accomplished? But you know, God is not amused. God's not concerned with Saul... Um, Saul's popularity. In verses 10 and 11, we see that God regrets that he made Saul king. That's what it says in verse 11. I regret this, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. This word regret is literally repent. I repent that I made Saul king. And the idea is not that God has sinned and he, or he made a mistake or something like that. It's the idea that God is sorrowful that he made Saul to be king. It's the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 6.6 where it says that the Lord was grieved. He, was, he regretted the fact that he made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain and the result was, what? The flood, right? That there was only evil on the earth all the time and so God sent the worldwide 
flood. It's the same word. The Lord was grieved. He regretted that He had made man on the earth. And what that should tell us is not that God makes mistakes, but rather that God is not indifferent about sin. He hates sin. He's not indifferent about it like, you know, oh well, I guess it happens sometimes, so what can, what can I do about it? What can a person do about it? You know, in this case, Saul, well, you know, he didn't do what I wanted, but too bad. No, God is grieved. Do you, see the, do you sense the emotion here that God has that he grieves, he regrets that he made Saul king because of the sin that he committed? He's grieved like a teacher grieves over the failure of her student. It's not just something, oh, you know, who, too bad. I guess they're going to have to take the class over again. Spiritual failure is concerned primarily about his own legacy. Number three, spiritual failure takes pride in his partial obedience. He takes pride in his partial obedience. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. So, in terms of, of how Saul looks at it, Samuel comes to him and says, Hey, what's going on? He takes pride in the whole situation. Did you see what I did here at Amalek? I obeyed the command of the Lord. In other words, I partially obeyed God, and that should be good enough. At this point, I don't think he realizes that God is displeased. See, what we read in verses 10 and 11, that God regretted that he had made Saul king, was just something that we know and Samuel, the prophet, knows. But Saul doesn't know at this point. He's going to know very quickly. And so at this point, Saul's talking to Samuel and he's saying, listen, I'm happy to take the credit for what just happened. I destroyed Amalek. I obeyed God. And what this tells us is that a spiritual failure is actually blinded to the truth, isn't he? He doesn't see that he's failed God, that he's only partially obeyed. He thinks somehow that his partial obedience will bring pleasure to God. Number four. A spiritual failure passes the blame to other people when confronted with sin. A spiritual failure pa- passes the blame to other people when confronted with sin, verses 14 to 16. Here Samuel confronts Saul about his sin in the form of a question. He says, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? One of the most famous questions perhaps in all the Bible. What is this bleeding of sheep and this lowing of oxen that I hear? And at this point, Saul realizes that God is not amused. God is not pleased with what he's done. And when he does, he stops taking credit or he stops taking pride in his partial obedience. And notice the subtle change in pronouns from verse 13. Notice verse 13. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 15. They have brought them from the the Amalekites. But the rest, we have utterly destroyed. See, we did the obedience part. They disobeyed. So what he's doing is he's passing the blame. He's not taking responsibility for what he did, but he's passing the blame to someone else. And partially what he's saying is true, right? Some of the the people probably did want to make a sacrifice. See how they kind of spiritualize what they're doing here. Uh, the, the people spared, verse 15, the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen so that they could sa- sacrifice them to the Lord our God, or the Lord your God. 
See, there's another subtle change here that's, that's taking place from verse 13 to verse 15. In verse 13 it is, I have obeyed, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Here in verse 15 it is, uh, they wanted to do that to the sacrifice to the Lord, your Samuel, your God, not my God. Right? That we, we may cross over that very quickly, but I think this, is, this should be clear that, that what Saul is doing is he's not concerned about the Lord his God. He's not following, seeking to follow God. He's more concerned about his own, how he's viewed by other people. Right? How, how this is going to come across to the people outside of the... Um, of the situation. How is it going to come across to his own people? How is Samuel going to respond? So a spiritual failure first stands up and takes pride in their partial obedience and then, or, or that should be third, but here fourth, passes the blame to other people when confronted with sin. Number five, spiritual failure squanders great privilege from God. Spiritual failure squanders great privilege. This goes along with what we saw this morning in Romans chapter 9 that the Jews, of all people, had these great privileges, these seven great privileges, including the Messiah, coming from them himself, uh, from, from their people group. And yet, they, many Jews squandered that great privilege, didn't they? Saul is a man very similar. He, he was not a man who, who grew up in a, a royal home. He did not have a lot of natural ability, apparently. He was tall. But he had this rags-to-riches kind of story, and it really happened in a short period of time. And he came from the smallest tribe in Israel and from the smallest clan in the smallest tribe. And, and when he was first approached about being king, he was shocked. He was a man of great privilege. This reminds me of how Nathan speaks to David in 2 Samuel 12, where he says, after David sins with Bathsheba, Nathan says to David on behalf of God, David... I gave you everything. I gave you your master's house and your master's wife and the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, God was saying through Nathan, I would have given you more. You are a man, David, of great privilege. And in your sin you have failed. And that's what's going on here with Saul. He was a man of great privilege. This is what Samuel wants to make clear to him. Verse 17, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head of the tribes of Israel. And it was the Lord who anointed you king over Israel. And it was the Lord who sent you on a mission. And He told you to go and utterly destroy the sinners, verse 18, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated. So why then, based on that privilege, verses 17 and 18, why then did you disobey the Lord and do what was evil in His sight? Why did you rush upon the spoil? And the, the you here in verse 19... Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Is actually a plural you. So he's talking about Samuel on behalf of the people. And the implication is that the people were being held responsible in part because of the sin of their king. That the, that the people were following behind him. That as Saul responded to the king, so did the people. And so what what Samuel wants to make clear is that, that Saul, you're a man of great privilege. You've received some great things from God and yet you've squandered them. By spending these 
this leadership, this responsibility on your own lusts, on your own desires, instead of fully obeying the voice of God. Number six, spiritual failure doubles down on his innocence and blame shifting when pressed by sin. Spiritual failure doubles down on his innocence and blame blame shifting when pressed by sin. Verses 20 and 21. So, remember his first claim? I obeyed the voice of the Lord. I obeyed the commands of the Lord. And Samuel says, And what's this voice of the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen? He said, Well, actually, it was the people. They're the ones who spared. So, So he claims innocence, and then he passes the blame. Here, when he's pressed on the sin in verses 20 and 21, notice how he responds. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. See there, he's doubling down on his innocence. I am innocent. I am not guilty. And then in verse 21, he doubles down on his blame shifting. But the people took some of the spoil. It was the people who did it. They took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction so that they could sacrifice it to the Lord your God at Gilgal. In other words, you know, they were just doing it for you. So it wasn't me that did it, but, but just in their defense, they were doing it to sacrifice to you, so why should you be upset about that, God? Spiritual failure doubles down on his innocence and blame shifting. In other words, it's the opposite of repentance, isn't it? You think of this in contrast to how, how David responded in 2 Samuel 12? And when David was approached about his sin, how did he respond? He said, no, no, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. No, when, when Nathan said, you are the man, then we, don't, we, we find not too much longer, not too much later in Psalm 51 that David says to God himself, he says, God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Please restore me. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me, right? See, David doesn't double down on his innocence or try to claim that it was somebody else's fault. Do you understand what kind of pressure I was under as king? But that's exactly what we find Saul doing, isn't it? Number seven, a spiritual failure doesn't understand what pleases God most. Verse 22. A spiritual failure doesn't understand what pleases God most. This is one of the key statements here in the text. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And we could say this in the form of a statement. God does not take as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as He does in obeying His voice. And then, He summarizes there at the end of verse 22, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In in case the main theme of the passage has not become clear by now, God wants to make it clear through the prophet Samuel. And that is that God takes no pleasure in partial obedience. He's not interested in, in all the sacrifices. He's more concerned about full obedience than he is about sacrifice. Now that doesn't mean that sacrifices are worthless or unnecessary, right? After all, God's the one who called for them, right? We we could say if we were in uh, the we were in the Jews' shoes at this time, right? We could say, well, wait a second, God, you're the one who called us to make sacrifices. You're the one who set up the whole Levitical system. 
So why are you telling us you don't take pleasure in those things? And what Samuel's saying is, no, it's not that he doesn't take pleasure. It do, it's that he doesn't take as much pleasure in those things as he does in full obedience. In listening to, listening to his voice and responding with obedience. What we need to recognize is that God has different levels of desires. There are some things that please God, and there are some things that please God more than those other things. We'll talk about that in, in, a, in a few minutes. But, but sometimes we can just say, well, there are you know, these things, and there are, they're all good, and these are the bad things, things that displease God. And that's why I say it this way, that a spiritual failure may understand some of the things that please God, but there are some that, that, that please God most. And that's what we ought to be pursuing. For example, does God take pleasure in the attendance of people at a worship service? Does God take pleasure in that? Does God take pleasure in people giving to the work of the Lord? We could say, yes, God takes pleasure in those things. But do you know He takes pleasure in more than that? The heart that's behind it, isn't it? Right? Because you can have the Pharisees come and put money in so that they can be seen by people. Does God take pleasure in that now? No, you have your reward. But then this little widow comes and gives all that she has. And that's what God takes pleasure in. Why? Because she gave out of her heart. She gave because she trusted in God. Do you see the kind of levels that God has? Yes, there are multiple things that God is pleased in, but we need to see what pleases God most. And what Saul does not recognize is that these things are an abomination to him. These, these partial obediences, these sacrifices. This is what God would say later to, uh, through Amos, the prophet. He would say, you know, I'm sick of your new moon festivals. I'm sick of your offerings. I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm tired of them. I don't want them anymore. Because you know why? You're doing them for yourself. You're not doing them for me. Malachi spoke of something very similarly. You know, you, you give all these offerings, these sacrifices. Do you think I want your blind and lame animals? Those, those, those don't do anything for me. Try giving those to your governor. See how that works out for you. Okay, what, what I expect from you is your best because I want you to give from your heart. So God takes pleasure in something, some things more than others, doesn't He? Number eight, very similarly... Spiritual failure doesn't understand what displeases God most. So he doesn't understand what pleases God most, and then he doesn't understand what displeases God most, and we see that in verse 23. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Here's what Samuel wants, to, here's what the Holy Spirit, I think, wants us to know from this passage that God hates sin. He hates rebellion. In fact, he calls partial obedience rebellion. Because we could, we could say, well, where did the rebellion come from, Samuel? I mean, I don't see any rebellion in this passage. I don't see Saul setting up, you know, Asherah poles or anything like that. So, I don't see Saul, you know, trying to flee to Tarshish or something when he's told to go destroy the Amalekites. So, where's the rebellion again, Samuel? You know what he's equating rebellion with? Partial obedience. He's saying you obeyed God to an extent and then you stopped. And that is, notice what it is. It's like the sin of divination. It's like the sin of insubordination. It's, it's iniquity. It's idolatry. 
It's rejecting the Word of the Lord. Friends, we like to downplay our sins, don't we? Like Saul does. And we need to learn to call sin what it is. And I would encourage you that when you pray to God about your sin, call sin what it is. Call it rebellion against His rule, His sovereign rule. God, You have told me to live a certain way and I have rejected You. I have rebelled against You. This is the nature of our own self-deception. We tend to justify our own sin. We downplay our own mistake. We call it kind of nice words, don't we? It's a mistake. Or, you know, it was an error in judgment. It was ignorance. I shouldn't have done it. But... You know what God calls it? Verse 23. Rebellion. Insubordination. Iniquity. Idolatry. Rejecting Him. Partial obedience is rebellion in the eyes of God. Spiritual uh, failure doesn't understand what displeases God. He doesn't know how to categorize a sin. He's quick to downplay his sin. Number nine. Three more here. Spiritual failure confesses sin only as long as it's expedient. He's happy to confess a sin only as long as it's expedient. That's what we see in verses 24 and 25. We think Saul would be like, okay, I'm awake, I understand now. God is really uh, uh, hating what I have done, and I need to come to terms with that, I need to repent. That's not what Saul does. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Well, Saul, you got it. He says, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And we might look at this and say, well, you know, it looks like Saul is, is genuinely repenting. But let me be clear that admitting sin is a step toward repentance, but it is not equivalent with repentance. So we're going to talk later about what repentance is, and I'm going to suggest to you that it starts with confessing our sin to God, saying to God about what our sin is, saying what He says about our sin. That's a step towards repentance, but that's not the same as repentance because do you know who who, who confesses their sin without repenting? Saul. Do you know who else does it? Pharaoh and Achan and Judas and Esau. They all say, you know, I have sinned. But that's not enough. Because Saul here is not concerned ultimately with reconciling with God. Instead, he's concerned about how he might look to the other people. Notice verse 26. He says, uh, Samuel says, I'll not, I'll not return with you, for you have rejected the Lord. And then, Sam, and then Saul tries to grab his robe in verse 27. We'll come to this later. And he says, Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom from you. Uh, let's skip down to verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me. See what he's trying to do there? He, he's happy to confess sin if it just gets him back to a right standing where he was before. Not with God, but with the other people and with Samuel. Notice he doesn't confess to God either. He confesses to Samuel. He says, I have sinned and I've transgressed. Verse 24 the command of the Lord and your word, Samuel, because I feared the people. And so can you please pardon my sin? Can you go to God so I can worship Him again? Saul was called to listen to the voice of the Lord, but instead he listened to the voice of the people. 
And he seeks forgiveness from Samuel, but he should have been seeking it from God. Spiritual failure confesses sin only as long as it's expedient. And then, number ten, a spiritual failure is primarily concerned about saving face before the people. Verses 26 to 31. He's primarily concerned about what he looks like. He's primarily concerned about his own reputation. And I think the response by Samuel is trying to show Saul the seriousness of his sin. Saul's Saul's saying, you know, I I know, look at the end of verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel says, he also has rejected you as king. And that's why I think verses 24 and 25, Saul's kind of saying something like this. Yeah, 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 kingdom, schmingdom. I'm sorry, but let's get things back to normal. And what Samuel wants him to know is, Saul, don't you get it? God has rejected you. Verse 26. Samuel said, I will not return. Your kingdom's not going to be restored. It's falling away from you. End of verse 26. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul pleads for mercy from Samuel. He grabs on his robe. Samuel says, listen, let that be a sign to you. Just as my robe was torn, verse 28, so will your kingdom be torn from you. I'm not playing games here. God's not playing games with you. He's serious about your sin. God is truth, and in Him are no lies at all. And unlike fickle Saul, God will stay true to who He is. And when He says He will rip the kingdom from Saul's grip, He will. He will do it. Saul has been rejected by God and his family. But even after Samuel tries to make this clear, listen, the kingdom is gone. God is, is, uh, he, he is hating what you are doing here. Saul still is not concerned with reconciling with God. He's primarily concerned back to his own legacy and with his own reputation from the people. And that's why, verse 29, uh, this is... Samuel speaking, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. So he's not going to change his mind with regard to ripping the kingdom from you. Then Saul replied, verse 30, I have sinned, but, you know, Samuel, will you just honor me now before the elders? In other words, make me look good as I go back there. You, you don't, don't make it look like, you know, we're out of, out of communion here and I'm not in good, good fellowship with God. Can you just go back with me so that I can worship the Lord in front of them so that they can see this? Samuel, for some reason, agrees to go back with Saul. And Saul worshiped the Lord before the people. But Saul is clearly concerned with more, more about the praise of people and, the, and what people think about him, like he was in verse 24. And that is a great danger to live according to what other people think of you. Proverbs 29:25 says, The fear of others lay a snare, but one who trusts in the Lord is secure. Saul's greatest desire is expressed, I think, here in verses 29 through 31. You know, I realize the sin part, Saul's saying, but, but can we handle this kind of diplomatically so that the people are not alarmed? I don't want them to lose any favor in me, any, any um, you know, I, I want them to continually accept me as their king. I, I want them, I, I want to look good before them. And so this worship here in verse 31, it's not about, it's not about honoring God. It's about saving face in front of the people. Spiritual failure is concerned about saving face before the people. And then finally, number 11, 
spiritual failure is forgotten by God. He's forgotten by God. Verses 32 to 35. Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, I'm not going to die. Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel did what Saul would not do. He hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see or literally meet Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. A spiritual failure is forgotten by God. What Saul is going to come to know is a silence from God. He's not going to hear from God anymore through Samuel. Samuel finishes the job that Saul was unwilling to do in verses 32 and 33. And then we see God's final rejection of Saul as king. Saul is not going to be the beneficiary of the kingdom. His children are not going to be the beneficiary of an ongoing dynasty. And worse yet, Saul will not be the beneficiary of what he has received, this great privilege of hearing God's voice. He's going to lose that. And this is often how God deals with people. He speaks, and He speaks, and He speaks, and He speaks, and we ignore, and ignore, and ignore once again. Eventually, there's no more speaking. God sends a famine of His voice. A famine of His word like He did in Amos. Now what you, when you want to hear from me, you're not going to hear from me. Because you wouldn't listen to my spirit when I sent Him. And this is what He's doing to Saul. Saul had this great privilege to hear from God and to respond to Him with full obedience. But he ignored Him. And that loud voice got quieter and quieter until he could hear it no more, to the point where even if he wanted to hear it, he couldn't. Because God hardened his heart like he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let's see if we can apply this to our lives. First, there's nothing more important than what God desires. Our problem generally is not that we don't know what God wants. Although that can be the case many times, right? We just... I, I want to know what God wants here, but I, I don't know, and I, I need to, to search that out. I think the bigger problem that we have is not that we don't know, but that we don't want to obey God. We, we want to live our way. We don't want God to be our master. We don't want to have Him to have control in every area of our lives. We're happy to give some of them. We're happy to obey partially. But when it comes down to the reputation that we want, our legacy, how people view us, I think we sin so often because we're not concerned with what God wants. We're concerned with what we think is best, right? That's why we go off into any sin that we do. We say, no, God, you said that if I don't go there, that I'm going to receive blessing, that this is going to be good for me, that I'll, I'll live long and, pro- and all this, but, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think I can gain pleasure from this. I think the problem is less about not knowing and more about unwillingness to submit to Him. 
We like to obey God where it's convenient. In verse 9, we see that the people gladly and fully obeyed God when it came to the worthless things. Yeah, I'm happy to get rid of those things. Those are annoying. Those are of no value to me. But the priceless treasures of Amalek, why would we destroy them? We can use them for something. And God's saying, but did you hear my, my command? It was everything. Destroy it all. Saul was a man of great privilege who was made to serve God, but, but he squandered his opportunity. And how much more privilege do you and I have? Since we are the recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mercy that comes with that, and yet, are we not susceptible to the same kinds of sin as Saul? Are we not susceptible to rebellion? Insubordination? idolatry, rejecting God, even though we have great privilege. The Holy Spirit wants us to know tonight that the thing that is of primary importance in this chapter and in your life is God's will. What does God will? What does God desire for you? And friends, while you hear the voice of God, listen to Him. There's nothing more important than what God desires. Secondly, there are levels of delights that God has. I mentioned this earlier, but, but this is no different than, than how we're wired as people as well, right? When you opened those socks on Christmas Day, I can guarantee you had a different reaction internally and externally than when you opened that electronic device or maybe a nice piece of clothing, nice sweater or something that you wanted. You had a different reaction. Why? Because you have levels of delights, don't you? There are some things that please you more than others. We could use food as an illustration, right? There are some foods that you like more than others. And the same thing is true with God. That God takes delight in some things over other things. And here what we need to see is that, that mature Christians recognize that there are these levels and that we seek to, to, to honor God at the highest of those levels. We, we try to figure out what it is that pleases God most and that's what we pursue. And all these other things fall in line. Isn't that what Matthew 6.33 is all about? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. God wants you to understand that you, you must listen to His voice primarily. That's what He likes most of all. You see, when it comes to great sacrifices that we make, you know, maybe sacrifices of time or service, those are good. But you know what God loves more than that? It's when we simply obey Him. When we examine, God, what is it that you want? And, and I'm going to trust you in this. And then we do it. Because God sees partial obedience as disobedience, as rebellion, insubordination, divination, idolatry, rejection. Let me finish with a question and an exhortation. First, what, the question, what is true repentance? What is true repentance? People who understand the seriousness of their sin, they see sin as God sees it. You see what happens here in this passage? When Saul's confronted with his sin, he downplays it. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a gag and a couple other things that are, you know, we can use for something good. It's not that big of a deal. He downplays it. What does God do? He amplifies it. No, Saul, it's rejection. It's idolatry. 
Saul is complacent about his sin. How does God respond to his sin? He grieves over it, doesn't he? I regret that I made Saul king. I regret that he doesn't obey me. So what is it to truly repent? And I think, as I mentioned earlier, it starts with confession. Okay? Confession. That doesn't mean go to a pastor or a priest and tell him what you did. You're your own priest. If you are a child of God, you are your own priest. That is, you have direct access to God through God. You don't have to go through anyone else. You go directly to God through God the Son. Jesus Christ is your high priest. You are a lesser priest. That's why Peter calls us a royal priesthood, right? Each one of us have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. In that sense, we are dwelling places of God. We are priests. So you don't have to go to someone to confess your sins, although you may need to do that if you've sinned directly against them. But, but what I'm talking about is confessing your sin before God, which is owning up to your sin, saying about your sin what God says about it. Say, God, I have dethroned you. You deserve first place in my life. I have taken you off the throne and I put what I want in its place. This desire was more important to me than you, God. And I, I have made this thing that otherwise might have been good, a good gift from you, I've made it into an idol, God. And it, it is a great sin and a vile sin against you. And God, I deserve your wrath but I want to turn from that sin now. And that's the next thing. We need to move away from our sin. It's a turning to God. First Thessalonians talked about turning to God, from God, uh, sorry, turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. So that's these next two parts. We turn from sin. So it's not just confessing our sin. Saul did that. Lots of other unbelievers throughout the Bible did that. Bible did that. But we need to not only confess it, but, but turn from our sin and turn to God. God, this is, I'm putting this off. And I'm going to put this on. Okay? I, I'm putting off the sin of anger and I'm putting on this, this act of righteousness. I'm going to speak truth to one another now. And then I think, fourthly, it also includes a willingness to take the consequences for our sin. And this is uh, illustrated, I think, in David, that he was willing to accept the consequences of his sin after he sinned with Bathsheba. Um, and, uh, and unlike what, what Saul is doing here. So that's, that's how I understand repentance. The the, the Probably the most basic way we could describe it is turning from sin to God. So, exhortation is this. Take a step of repentance today. Take a step of repentance today. If you think you can pick and choose which commands that you can obey, then, then you are not pleasing God. He expects full obedience. He expects that you give everything to Him, that you obey Him fully in every area of your life. Now you might think, wait a second, that's impossible. I am far from that right now, and so I may as well just give up because I know where I am, I know where you're saying I need to be, but I can't get there and I'm just done. Let me try to simplify it for you. What clear commands of God do you know that you are disobeying right now? Okay, so yes, there may be a, hu there may be a huge laundry list of things that you are not doing or that you are doing that you shouldn't be doing. But what are a few things that came to mind tonight? You don't know how to get rid of that whole laundry list of evil things that you're doing or to start doing the things you know you ought to be doing. But you know a few things, don't you? I can imagine that as you were sitting here tonight, that perhaps the Holy Spirit of God prompted you with a few things. So I would say start there. Take a step. 
Talk to God about these things. God, these are some pretty glaring violations of your commands to me. And so I'm going to start there, but I can't do it on my own, God. I need your help. So go, go to God. Go to the Scriptures. Find strength in the Scriptures. Find out exactly what He wants from you in that specific area. And then start making steps towards change. You know, big change doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen when you say, I'm going to do it. It happens slowly as you take one step at a time. And eventually you get to where you ought to be. Maybe tonight as I was preaching, the thing that immediately came to your mind were your federal income taxes. The beginning of a new year, so you're going to be getting... You're going to have responsibility to turn in some tax forms. And you know that for the last several years that you have been lying about how much money you make so that you could fall in, a, fall in a lower tax bracket. You could put a little bit more money in your pocket. And the way that you've justified it is, well, you know, if I have a little bit more money, if I'm giving less to the government, it's more than I can give to the church. More than I can do for my family, which is more important than the government. So there's that. And so maybe you thought about that as you were listening tonight. That's my sin that I need to, to start pursuing and, and start stop pursuing, that I need to start pursuing repentance in that. If, you're no, if you know that you're not fully obeying God in that area, go to the Scriptures. See what God says about paying your taxes. And then be honest. Pray to God. Ask for forgiveness and make reparations with the IRS. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you remembered that you blew up in anger at your family member and you haven't made it right with them. What does the Bible say about your anger? How does God want you to respond? What is it that pleases God most? What is it that you can do to take one step tonight towards repentance, towards change? That's what believers are doing. They're constantly thinking, you know, I'm not where I need to be. And as the Holy Spirit reminds me of these things that I'm doing, I'm taking steps towards change. And I'm taking steps in line with what God expects of me, not partial steps. Not partial obedience. I'm seeking to go all out for the sake of obeying God as He desires. Let's pray. Father, this passage is a little bit harder to think through because um, we would rather have something that, that en- encourages us in a way that, that reminds us about your, your grace. But, but really, this passage does remind us about your grace because... The fact that you give us a way to repent is a sign that you love us. And the fact that you point us to our sins in a message like this is a signal that your Holy Spirit is alive and at work within us. And Lord, as long as we hear his voice, may we listen and respond. May we never be people who who are just complacent, lackadaisical when it comes to our sin. Just think, well, you know, it'll come around. It'll happen on its own. It'll change. God will do the work. I don't need to put any effort into it. Or maybe it doesn't bother you that much. I'm doing some other good things. Lord, help us not to be complacent about our sin, but to take it as seriously as you do. Lord, our sin was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And our sin is is responsible for the consequences that we face for many of the things that we we are um, experiencing today. It, and Lord, we, we want to own up to our sin. There's nothing better for a Christian than to come into the light and just be fully exposed spiritually so that, that your, the light of your word can shine in the dark places of our heart that we have been hiding from you. We pray that you would open us up.
that you would lay us bare before you. Or do you have eyes that see to and fro throughout the whole earth? And of course, you see into the depths of our hearts. So, Lord, reveal to us our sin and cause us to change through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.